The title of the series is Being Realistic About Reasons. This first lecture is an introduction to it. And please, will you welcome Tim Stanley. It's a, a great honor to be giving these lectures and a pleasure to be doing them back in Oxford, which, as John said, it had a formative influence on me. I arrived here in 1962, uh, a fresh bachelor's degree from Princeton, uh, extremely green and philosophically naive, and very uncertain about whether to pursue a career uh, in philosophy. Uh, I was um, located in Brazenose. Uh, where John Ackrell and Michael Woods, who were then the philosophy dons, were wonderfully, wonderfully welcoming. Uh, and uh, as was William Neal, who held uh, John's chair at that time, who was my supervisor. Uh, it was a very exciting time in Oxford. Uh, Michael Dummett was lecturing on logic and philosophy of math, which were my principal interests at the time. And they were wonderful lectures. I still have the notes. Uh, and he kindly gave me, gave me weekly weekly tutorials uh, in some dark place in all souls. I don't know quite where it was. <laughs> Philip Afoot was lecturing on moral philosophy, Herbert Hart on philosophy of law, Peter Strawson had just finished individuals and was giving lectures on subject and predicate, which I couldn't understand. Uh, and, and Paul Grice was giving widely attended graduate classes on philosophy of language. So it was a very exciting time to be here. And it was exciting for me particularly uh, also because of my own contemporaries who were I don't want to quite say students. Not all of them could exactly be called students, even at that time. They included George Bulos, who became my life quite closest friend for decades. Saul Kripke, who was just just out of just my age, just just past his back bachelor's degree, but had already published these famous these famous articles. Peter Unger, Steve Schiffer, Hans Sluga, Michael Freda, John Cooper. And no doubt there are many others I, I haven't, haven't mentioned. Uh, Jerry Cohen was also a, a BPhil student at the time, but I had the great misfortune not to meet him until, until 10 years later, so much to my uh, bad luck. So I've made many other visits. So you can see, given what Oxford was like, it's inevitable that I would have found uh, philosophy um, irresistible as, as, as a career, and by, by the uh, beginning of the spring back, uh, I, I decided that that's what I had to do. I've made many other visits to Oxford in the intervening years, all of them rewarding, uh, but I'd like to begin these lectures simply by expressing my gratitude to Oxford in general and my particular gratitude to all those people who were here at that time, those who are still among us and those who aren't, who made that visit such a vital year and such a turning point in my life. Now, my lecture today, uh, I just say this because it's such a nice day outside, particularly, uh, uh, my lecture today has a significant overlap with, with a lecture I gave at the Royal Institute uh, in, in January, in London in January a year ago, and I believe there are a few of you who might have been present on that occasion, so if you want to enjoy uh, the sunshine, uh, there's some new bits here and some, some foreshadowing of the lectures come, which I guarantee you will be new, <laughs> but I don't want you to feel you've missed the sunshine, and, and, but I already heard most of that. Um, this is, as John said, a, a series of lectures in meta-ethics broadly understood. Um, as I understand it, 
contemporary discussion in metaethics differs in two important ways from the discussion of that subject in the time when I first visited Oxford, and even uh, from the discussion in the later 1970s, for example, when John Mackey wrote his influential ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. In those earlier periods, the discussion was focusing mostly on morality, on the proper interpretation of claims about right and wrong and other forms of moral evaluation. Today, although morality is still much discussed in metaethics, Michael Smith called his book The Moral Problem, a significant part of the debate uh, now concerns practical reasoning and normativity more generally, the proper interpretation of claims about reasons for action and perhaps even more broadly in some versions, claims about reasons for belief and other attitudes which are increasingly recognized as normative and as raising questions of a similar nature as those about reasons for action. The meta-ethics of the mid-20th century also gave a central place to the question of motivation. With respect to morality in particular, the question was how agents can be motivated by their moral judgments. In the possibility of altruism, for example, Thomas Nagel was attacking the prevailing Humean orthodoxy, and he considered requirements of ethics and prudence to be rational requirements, in contrast to what many other people thought at the time. But he presented the problem he was addressing as a problem about motivation. Thus he wrote, I conceive of ethics as a branch of psychology. My claims concern its foundation or ultimate motivational basis. Today, although motivation is still often mentioned, questions are more likely to be put in terms of reasons. With respect to morality, the question is when and why is it true that a person has a reason to do, perhaps a sufficient and compelling reason to do, what will benefit him in the future, or sufficient reason to do what morality requires. This isn't a psychological question, as I understand it. Now, it may be tendentious for me to say here that metaethics as a field has undergone these two changes. Perhaps they are only changes in my own thinking, or thinking of the people I talk with most frequently because I hang out in the wrong quarters. But whatever may be true about the field as a whole, my approach in these lectures will fall on the second side of each of these dichotomies. My focus will be on normativity in general, treating morality as a special case, and I will be concerned centrally with the idea of a reason rather than motivation, mainly with the idea of a reason for action, although I will have a few things to say about reasons of other kinds. Indeed, I will take normativity simply to be the domain of claims about the reasons people have for actions or for, a, or for particular attitudes. I also believe that familiar normative notions such as value and morally, moral right and wrong are best understood in terms of claims about reasons. This assumption may affect what I have to say. In particular, as I will say in my last lectures, Focusing on specific claims about reasons while ignoring the context provided by their role in richer normative notions such as morality and the good may make some of the problems about reasons that I will discuss appear to be more difficult than perhaps they are. Restricting normativity to claims about reasons may also be controversial. Some may hold that not all normative claims are claims about reasons, but the term normative is not what the disagreement should be about. The question is whether claims about rationality support claims about reasons. I'm inclined to believe that they do not. 
It's also an interesting question whether there are forms of normativity that do not depend on or lead to claims about reasons. I will leave this question about the alternative forms of normativity open, although you will be able to discern as I go along uh, that, that my attitude is one of suspicion. In my lectures, I'll offer a qualified defense of cognitivism about reasons. That is to say, the view that claims about reasons for action can be correct or incorrect, and that the accepting of such a claim can be seen as a kind of belief. I will also maintain that truths about reasons are irreducibly normative truths, not reducible to or identifiable with truths of other kinds, such as truths about the natural world of physical objects, causes, and effects. So I am what might be called a reasons fundamentalist. My defense of this position is, as I said, qualified. It's not qualified because I am tempted by other views, but rather because I believe that a cognitivist view of the kind I defend faces very serious problems, although these are not the problems that are, I think, most frequently mentioned. The idea that there are irreducibly normative truths about reasons is, I think, very close to common sense. Consider, for example, the following claims, which seem to me commonsensical. For a person who is in control of a fast-moving automobile, the fact that if the steering wheel is not turned, the car will injure and perhaps kill a pedestrian, but if the wheel is turned, it will hit no one, is a reason to turn the wheel. That seems true if anything is. Second, the fact that a person's child has died is a reason for that person to feel sad. Third, the fact that it would be enjoyable to listen to some very engaging music, moving one's body gently in time with it, is a reason to do this, or to continue doing it if one has already started. These things all seem to me at least to be obviously true. But the philosophical thesis that there are such irreducibly normative truths, or that these are irreducibly normative truths, may seem unsatisfactory. It may be commonsensical, but it's not philosophical because it leaves unexplained many things that a proper philosophical theory should explain. Here are some of the questions that it might seem to need proper philosophical answers. First, relational character. Reasons are reasons for an agent. They are facts that stand in a certain relation to an agent. How is this relational character to be understood and explained? Second, ground of truth. In virtue of what are claims about reasons true when they are true? In particular, does the idea that claims about reasons can be true or false, independent of our opinions about them, and that truths about reasons are irreducibly normative, have unacceptable metaphysical implications? If not, why not? If so, how should we deal with them? Supervenience, a special case of the former question, perhaps. How are facts about reasons, if there are such facts, related to natural facts? They are not entailed by natural facts, all agree, but they can't vary unless natural facts vary. And this strange relation of non-entailment but some kind of rigid binding uh, may seem puzzling and in need of explanation. Knowledge. If claims about reasons are claims about irreducibly normative truths, not natural truths, how can we come to know truths of this kind? Practical significance. Judgments about reasons play a different role than other beliefs, if they are beliefs, such as beliefs about the natural world, in our practical reasoning and in the explanation of action. How can they play this special role if they're just another kind of belief? 
strength. Reasons seem to come in varying strengths. The reason that I mentioned to turn the wheel of the car, for example, is a stronger reason than the reason to go on listening to the enjoyable music that's playing on the car radio. The fact that turning the wheel to avoid hitting the pedestrian would interfere with one's enjoyment of the music on the radio is not a sufficient reason not to turn it. So there's a question about what this idea of relative strength of reasons amounts to and how it is to be understood. Finally, what I'll call optionality, which may be just a subcategory of the problem of strength, although I think it's not quite right. Some reasons seem to be optional. That is, they are reasons that it makes sense to act on if one one chooses, whereas other reasons are normatively conclusive. They're reasons it doesn't make sense not to act on. The reason to turn the car seems to be of the latter kind. The reason to listen to the music is of the former. If I would enjoy listening to some music, then I have reason to do so, but it also might make sense for me to do something else, such as take a nap or think about some philosophy. I will argue in my next lecture that the idea that there are irreducibly normative truths about reasons for action does not have troubling metaphysical implications. And I will offer an account of the relation between normative facts and naturalistic facts. You'll be disappointed in the account, but I will say something about that. It would be desirable to have an account of what makes claims about reasons true when they are true. But, I hold, such an account, if it could be given, would itself be a normative thesis, not a metaphysical one. In my third lecture, I'll try to provide an account of how an agent's judgments about reasons, even if they are a kind of belief, the sort of thing that can be true or false, Uh, can explain that person's subsequent actions. Taken together with the first point about the lack of metaphysical implications, this undermines, it seems to me, the main pull toward expressivist views. And in this third lecture, I'll discuss the pull toward expressivism and whether there really remains a difference between expressivism and the view that I'm uh, supporting. In my fourth lecture, I will argue that it's a mistake to think that there is a special epistemological problem about how we could get in touch with irreducibly normative truths. This largely follows from what I will say about metaphysics in my second lecture. But I will also maintain that it's very reasonable to want a fuller normative account of how we can determine which claims about reasons are true. This is the residual problem of characterizing the ground of normative truth that I mentioned earlier. It is, I think, a normative problem, and it's one to, to which I'll tell you now uh, I have no very satisfactory solution. In my final lecture, however, I will canvas some possibilities for a positive account of how we can come to know normative truths and how ideas such as strength and optionality uh, can be understood. Now, a general account of this kind about what, how we can come to know normative truths and what makes them true, if we had one, might provide answers to the further questions on my list. It might explain what it is for one reason to be stronger than another and explain how we should go about deciding whether this is so in a given case. And it might also explain optionality. All these questions uh, might seem to be answered by some familiar accounts of reasons. For example, accounts of reasons that base them on desires. For example... Uh, it might be held that X has a reason to do A just in case doing A would promote the fulfillment of some desire that X has. Or perhaps 
a little more demandingly, X has a reason to do A if doing A would promote the fulfillment of a desire that X would have if X were fully aware of the relevant non-normative facts and thinking clearly about them. A view of this kind seems to explain the relational character of reasons quite readily. Reasons are reasons for a person who has the relevant desire or who would have the desire under the right conditions. It might also seem to account for the phenomenon of strength. Desires have varying strengths, that is to say, varying motivational power. And a desire theory might hold that a reason is stronger than another just in case the desire on which it is based is stronger in this motivational sense or would be stronger under the the appropriately idealized conditions. The fact that some reasons are optional might also be explained by saying that they are reasons for doing something if you desire or if you want to do it. And the idea that some reasons are non-optional would thus be the idea that there are some things that promote the fulfillment of desires that everyone has or that everyone has who is fully informed about his or her situation and thinking clearly. There might seem to be no difficulty in explaining how we can know what reasons we have according to a view of this kind, since we can, at least sometimes, know what we desire and know what would fulfill those desires. And we can explain how reasons can motivate people, since desires motivate a person to do what would promote their fulfillment. That's what desires are all about. And a person has a reason to do something, who has a reason to do something has a desire that that action would promote the fulfillment of. Finally, a desire theory might claim to explain the phenomenon of supervenience. At one level, this seems obvious. If the reasons for action that people have are a function of natural facts about their desires and about what will promote their fulfillment, then as long as those natural facts remain unchanged, people's reasons for action will remain the same as well. The ability to explain so readily all these aspects of reasons is, I believe, a large part of what makes desire-based accounts so appealing. Certainly they seem very appealing to the students I teach when I begin a course in moral philosophy. There are, however, well-known difficulties with accounts of this kind. Many of these difficulties, the ones that are most often mentioned in the course, concern what may seem to be counterintuitive implications about what reasons people have. Does a person really have reason to do what will fulfill any desire that that he or she has, no matter how foolish? Does everyone have desires that would explain the reason to turn the car in my first case? And does that reason really depend on the person's having such a desire? These problems might be lessened, perhaps, by shifting from actual desires to informed desires and making suitable optimistic assumptions about what people would desire if fully informed. But this move brings problems of its own for the desire view's account of motivation, since it's less obvious that people are always motivated by the fact that an action would promote the fulfillment of desires if these are desires that they don't now have, but only would have after undergoing suitable changes. Now, I believe that substantive objections of this kind to desire theories do count strongly against accepting a desire theory of that sort. Uh, But I want to set these objections aside for the moment and to set the agenda for later discussion, consider instead what may seem at first to be a deeper objection, which is that the explanatory potential of desire theories is is in an important respect illusory or might seem to be so. The illusion arises from the fact that desire theories can be understood in two very different ways and the statements of the theories often do not clearly distinguish between them. 
One way in which it is natural to read desire theories is as substantive normative claims about what reasons people have. It may be quite plausible to claim in many cases that people have reason to do what will promote the satisfaction of their desires. But so interpreted, this claim is just a plausible normative claim about one kind of reason, a reason for action. A theory of reasons based on it, what I will call a normative desire theory, would not explain normativity. It wouldn't explain what it is to be a reason. For one thing, it wouldn't apply to all reasons, but only reasons for action. It wouldn't, for example, explain reasons for belief or why the fact that one's child has died is a reason to feel sad. So if a desire theory is a plausible account of reasons for action, this would have to be due to something special about action and its relation to desire. But maybe that's not a problem. Such a theory could explain some features of reasons for action, such as the relational nature of reasons, as I said, their strength, and so on, in the ways I've mentioned. But these explanations would be based on one general substantive claim about what reasons we have, and thus would indeed all be explanations internal to the normative realm itself. For this reason, the explanations that a normative desire theory offers for these other features may seem insufficiently deep. A normative desire theory would not, for example, explain a general, sorry, would not provide a general explanation of how we can come to know normative truths. It simply makes a general substantive claim about reasons for action, that we have reason to do whatever satisfies our desires, which, if true, leaves us then only with the empirical question of how to figure out which actions will do this. In the same way, the thesis that the only thing we have reason to do is to get as much money as possible would leave us just with the problem of figuring out how to get rich. Maybe that's actually more difficult than people thought a few months ago, but I, I won't, well, still, it seems easier than maybe cracking the problem of trying to figure out normativity in general. Um, um, it, 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 would just, it would not solve the problem of how we come to know normative truth, but simply offer one such truth, which it claims we know. Nor would a desire theory of this kind explain how beliefs about reasons, qua normative beliefs, motivate people. All the motivational work in the account it offers is done not by the belief that we have a reason to do what will promote our desires, but by those desires themselves, which the desire theory holds are what it is that make that belief true. Finally, it may seem that the explanation of supervenience offered by a normative desire theory would not go deep enough. It would not explain why there could not be a possible world in which the natural facts were the same as in our world, but in which normative facts were different, because in that world, people's desires did not provide them with reasons for action, or, because, or, or perhaps in that world, not all desires did this, but only certain desires. Uh, desires accompanied by certain other conditions. Right? We, might, we might make a different fundamental assumption. These points might be summed up by saying that normative desire theories are not rivals to what I call reasons fundamentalism. They are quite compatible with it. In fact, it seems that they even presuppose it, unless more is said about, about the basic normative claim on which they are founded. An alternative interpretation of a desire theory would take it to offer a reductive claim about what it is for someone to have a reason, rather than a normative claim about when it is that someone has a reason for action. Interpreted in this way, a desire theory might provide answers to some of the questions I've just listed. The question, however, I won't, I won't take you through the list. You can, I'll leave it as an exercise to the listener. The question, however, would be whether this would explain reasons or rather eliminate their normativity by identifying facts about reasons with non-normative facts. 
the action guiding force of reasons on such a theory would be purely causal and explanatory. If the fact that one has a strong reason not to do X and no countervailing reason to do, to do X is just a natural fact about what will satisfy one's desires, this fact might explain one's failure to do X. But it doesn't explain why believing that one has such a reason, believing that this natural fact obtains, can make it irrational for one to do X, to act against the reasons that one takes oneself to have. A reductive desire theorist might reply that if all normativity is to be understood in terms of the idea of a reason, as I've suggested, then if it is in fact true that a person's having a reason just consists in some fact about that person's desires and what will promote them, then a reductive desire theory preserves normativity since it preserves the idea of a reason. Mark Schroeder gives a, 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 a vigorous defense of this kind of claim uh, and this defense of, of, a, of a reductive desire theory in his recent book, Slaves of the Passions, published by OUP. So I'm doing a little bit of work here. For Peter, so. um, go out and buy it. Uh, so the question is, is whether we should accept this reductive claim. Should we accept, if the reductive claim is accepted, the, the, the reductive diatheresis, then we still have normativity because we still have reasons. It's just that reasons are identical with this fact about desires and what satisfies them. So the question is whether this reductive claim should be accepted. I myself believe that the reductive claim is refuted by the evident lack of intrinsic normative significance of facts about desires. But my, but my simply asserting that this is so may seem to lead to a standoff. I'll say, if that's what reasons are, they aren't really reasons. And the other person says, yes, they are. And so you could see would be sort of a fruitless discussion there. To move beyond this standpoint, one needs to consider and assess the evidence that might be offered in support of the reductive thesis. In Schroeder's case, for example, much depends on his claim that facts about desires, rather than, say, about what a person would enjoy, are the best explanation of the reasons that one person, say, who likes dancing, has to go to a party where there will be dancing, as compared to the reasons of another person who doesn't uh, desire to dance and hence has no reason uh, to go. The question is, what's doing the explanation there? Is it, is it, is it basically the, is the difference in their reasons to be given a hedonistic explanation or is it to be given a desire-based uh, explanation? Um, Schroeder maintains, maintains the latter. So I, I, I may discuss this at the end of my, of my second lecture, although that lecture at present is a little bit long for the space, so it may not get in. But anyway, that, that's where one would have to go to settle that question. But I'm not going to settle it, try to settle it now. It seems, then, that desire theories face a dilemma. Either they begin with a normative claim about reasons for action, in which case they don't explain the features of reasons that may seem puzzling. They're just an, it's just another form of reasons fundamentalism. Or else they make a reductive claim, which seems, by most people's lights anyway, to eliminate normativity altogether. This raises two questions. The first is whether there is any way of understanding the appeal of desire theories which avoids this dilemma. I'll say a little bit about that in the rest of this lecture. The second is whether explanations of the kind offered by normative desire theories are as unsatisfactory as they seem. I believe that such theories are unsatisfactory, although not for the reasons that I mentioned here, not because of their lack of explanatory depth. And I will return uh, to that question in my fourth lecture. But I want to turn now to a different way of explaining claims about reasons, which is to hold that such claims can be grounded in an idea of rationality. 
I will argue in, in, in passing that part of the appeal of desire theories actually lies in a similar strategy of reducing reasons to claims about rationality. A rationality-based account has the following general form. It holds that X is a reason for a person to do A when and because rationality requires such a person to count X in favor of doing A. The right-hand side of this formula employs the idea of a reason in one form. It employs the idea of a certain attitude, namely the attitude of counting a consideration in favor of an action. But this is just the idea of an agent's treating something as a reason. The right-hand side of the formula, that a person has a, X is a reason if and only if rationality requires the person to count X in favor of the action, that the right-hand side of that formula involves no claims about what reasons people actually have as opposed to what attitudes they have. The work in the formula is done not by the idea of a reason, but by the concept of rationality, and properly so. Now, there's a familiar sense of rational in which the rational thing to do is just the thing that one has most reason to do, or perhaps the thing that one would have most reason to do if one's beliefs were true. People use rational in this sense when, for example, they claim that what, is, what it is rational to do is simply always to act in one's self-interest. That's a claim about rationality in, in a common use of that term, but what it really is is just a general thesis about, about reasons on a par with normative desire theory, so to speak. Such a claim about rationality doesn't explain claims about reasons. It rather presupposes or asserts claims about what reasons people have. It's a non-garbage-in, non-garbage-out theory of rationality, you might say, what some people might call a buck-passing view. A rationality-based account of reasons would be trivial and fail in its aims if the notion of rationality it appealed to were of this buck-passing sort. So a view of this kind must employ some conception of rationality that is narrower, that doesn't consist of or depend on a substantive conception of the reasons people have. Um, in a Kantian theory, which is the most familiar view of this type, the fundamental claim is that it, the fundamental claim uh, is that the categorical imperative is a condition of rationality, or following it is a condition of rationality. The basic claim is that anyone who sees him or herself as a rational agent must, on pain of irrationality, see the categorical imperative as the fundamental principle of his or her practical reasoning. A consideration X is thus, is thus a reason for an agent to do A, according to this theory, if failure to count X as a reason to do A would be incompatible with the categorical imperative. It would, it would be a maxim that the categorical imperative would rule out. So far, this may seem to cover only moral reasons broadly construed. My colleague Chris Korsgaard's conscience view broadens this by adding that something X can be a reason for an agent to do A, not only if it's ruled out by moral reasoning, but also if failing to see X as such a reason would be incompatible with some practical identity that the agent has adopted, where adopting this identity is itself compatible with the categorical imperative. Now, it's worth considering how a view that bases claims about reasons on requirements of rationality might explain some of the puzzling features about reasons that I mentioned above. A view of this kind can explain what I call the relational character of facts about reasons. 
Since, in, since such facts are, on this view, facts about what an agent can, consistent with rationality, treat as a reason. And there's, there's the relation, the relation between the agent and the consideration in which the agent is treating that consideration as a reason. It can also explain what makes claims about reasons correct when they are correct. They're correct if they do indeed follow from the relevant requirements of rationality. We can know what reasons we have on such an account because we can know what rationality requires, and insofar as we are rational, we will be moved to do what we have reason to do, namely to do what rationality requires of us. The strength of reasons might be explained in what's, what might be called a top-down fashion in contrast to the bottom-up explanation offered by a desire theory. It is not that reasons come with particular strengths as they do on a desire-based view. One desire is more powerful than the other, so the reason that it generates dominates or is stronger than the reason that the other, that the other desire uh, gives rise to. Rather, on a rationality-based view of the kind I'm discussing, one consideration is a stronger reason than another if it would be irrational to refrain from doing what the former reason counts in favor of because the latter reason counted against so acting. So it worked, we explain strength in terms of downwardly in terms of general principles about, uh, about which reasons we're supposed to give priority, which considerations we're supposed to give priority to when they conflict. It may be less clear how a rational, rationality-based view should explain the optional character of reasons, but I will leave this aside for now in order to consider what has been seen as one of the main advantages of rationality-based views over rival accounts such as reasons fundamentalism of the kind that I espouse. The two shifts in metaethics that I mentioned at the outset, from morality to normativity in general and from motivation to reasons, interact with one another in a way that causes some difficulty. If morality is the topic, then the second shift from motivation to reasons is intelligible. One can ask not only what motivates people to do what morality requires, but also instead what reason they have or whether they have a reason to do what morality requires. Taking the second shift on board, though, and moving from motivation um, to reasons, if reasons in general rather than morality are the target that we're trying to uh, examine and explain, what room is there for a further question beyond the, the claims about what reason a person has if, if, if the further question isn't motivational? There's no further question about, of reasons because we've already said the person has a reason to do it. There's, it can't be what reason do people have to do what they have reason to do. So it looks as if if there's a further question, uh, it, it, must be, it must be a motivational question. One way of understanding this further question is in the way that uh, my colleague Chris Kurzgaard uh, calls the normative question. This is the question of how reasons acquire their normative force or, as she sometimes puts it, how reasons get a grip on an agent. A view of the kind I'm calling reasons fundamentalism, which takes there to be facts about what things are reasons, cannot, she says, give a satisfactory answer to this question. If a consideration's being a reason for a person is just another fact about the world, she says, then the person could still be perfectly indifferent to this fact. And what could we say? Now, what kind of grip is in question here. It can't be a normative grip if normativity is understood solely in terms of reasons, as I proposed. As I said, the question can't be, what reason do I have to do what I have reason to do? 
We might say, as I suggested a minute ago, that the residual question is one of motivation. But here we need to distinguish two different issues. On the one hand, there is the question of how a person can be motivated by the thought that something is a reason for action if this thought is a mere belief that something is the case. This is the problem coming down to us from Hume in his, in his formulation of how, how reason can influence the will. He thought it couldn't. As I will say later, I believe that the idea of rational agency provides an answer to this question. The question itself is what might be called the internal question of motivation. It's how people can be moved to act, how action can be explained by reference to views, conclusions about reasons that a person already accepts if those conclusions take the form of beliefs. But I'm not going to discuss that question here, partly because it will be the subject of my third lecture, but more importantly today because I don't believe it's the question that my colleague Chris has in mind, uh, and I'm interested in, in, in isolating this other way of understanding the further question. A second way of understanding the normative question in terms of motivation would be to see it as what might be called an external question of motivation. That is, a question about how the fact that X is a reason for an agent to do A, if it is just a fact, could get the agent to accept that X is a reason to do A and treat it as such. If the truth of my first claim, that is that uh, the fact that only turning the wheel of the car will prevent a pedestrian from being killed is indeed a reason to turn, turn the wheel, if that's just a fact, how can that fact, as it were, uh, get a grip on the agent and get the agent to treat it as a reason? The agent could simply deny that this is a reason. If, if he or she did, what could we say to that person? The reasons fundamentalist, course card might say, would simply insist, look, it's a reason, and that's all there is to it. And this is obviously not going to move the person who denies that it is or fails and fails to see it and remains indifferent to the whole question. Now, the challenge in question here is not, I think, correctly described as a question of motivation. If, if that question is understood to mean if that's understood to mean a question that might be answered by a psychological explanation of how a person could be moved to respond to a fact in a certain way. The problem, I think, and the further, the further issue that's still alive, uh, corresponding to the issue of why be moral, uh, is not how an agent might be brought to respond. Is, is, sorry, it's not, it's not a question of motivation in a psychological sense, but rather something more like normative authority. The question is not how an agent might come to respond to the fact that X is a reason for her to do A by accepting it as a reason, how, what psychological process might bring this about. It's rather, it's, a, it's rather a question of why, if she does really have these reasons, she must respond in this way. It's because of that must that this is a normative question rather than merely a psychological one. Korsgaard is quite correct about what a reasons fundamentalist, or at least this particular reasons fundamentalist, would say in a situation of the kind we are here imagining. According to a reasons fundamentalist, the relation that holds between an agent and a consideration, X, which is the reason, 
in such a situation just is the relation of X as being a reason for that agent to do A. In the car case, my relation to the fact that turning the wheel is the only way to save the pedestrian is the relation of that thing being a reason for someone in my situation, that is, person with his hand on the wheel, um, to, turn, to turn the wheel. Um, the grip that the consideration has on the agent just is this normative relation of being a reason for him or her or in strongest cases, a decisive reason. As Korsgaard puts it quite correctly, a reason's fundamentalist, in her words, insists on the irreducible character of normativity. The fundamental disagreement here is whether there is some further explanation that can and should be given of this grip of why the agent in this situation must treat the consideration as a reason. Korsgaard believes that in order to explain the force of this must, we have to find something about the agent in virtue of which she must accept that X is a reason for her to do A. Whatever plays this role can't just be another truth about what reasons the person has, or else the whole problem would begin again. But in order to have normative force, the explanation we are looking for can't just be a psychological principle about how people are influenced by their surroundings. It follows, then, that the problem can be solved only by finding a kind of normativity, some grounding for a must, which lies beyond the normativity of reasons. Korsgaard and others find this in the idea of rational agency himself. As she puts it, quote, conscience believe that the source of the normativity of moral claims must be found in the agent's own will. I believe that what she says here explicitly about moral claims is, in her view, true of all claims about reasons. Claims about moral requirements are grounded in things that an agent must accept insofar as she sees herself as acting at all, and other reasons uh, are things that an agent must see as reasons in virtue of some specific identity that she has. In each case, the must is grounded in something that's already true of the agent, which makes it irrational for the agent to deny the force of the consideration, to, to deny the normative standing of the consideration in question. This idea that claims about the reasons an agent has must be grounded in something that is already true of that agent, for example, grounded in attitudes that the agent has or latently you know, must have, is shared by a surprisingly wide range of views, many of them not all Kantian. I'm tempted to say, although it would no doubt be an exaggeration, probably just you know, my attempt to, to feel, feel like a lonely and, and, and isolated and a lonely and abused minority, I'm tempted to say uh, that this idea that claims about reasons have to be grounded in something already true of an agent is shared by almost all the views uh, of people who believe that there are truths about reasons but are not themselves reasons fundamentalists. Consider, for example, Gil Harmon. Uh, his view as expressed in moral relativism defended. No Kantian tract that. Harmon, Harmon writes that an agent's reasons for action must follow from what he says, what he, in his words, her goals, desires, or intentions. He doesn't put it this way, but it seems to be in the spirit of his view to add that claims about reasons that are not based in the agent's goals, desires, or intentions, fail to get a grip on the agent. And I think something similar might be said by proponents of desire-based views more generally. 
such as Bernard Williams' view that the only correct claims about reasons are what he calls internal reason statements, that is, claims about what could be reached by a sound deliberative route from the agent's actual subjective motivational set. Williams' inclusion of the idea of a sound deliberative route allows that a consideration can be a reason for an agent, even though the agent is not presently motivated by that consideration. It's enough that being so motivated has the right kind of connection with the agent's present attitudes. This connection might be described in terms of motivation, but again, that doesn't seem to me the right way to put it. It seems to me it is at base a normative relation, as indicated by the fact that what Williams says is in question is a sound deliberative route. What the soundness of this route does is to ground the reason normatively in something to which the agent is already committed. Another claim that Williams once made may be relevant here. Arguing against proponents of external reasons, he said that there are many criticisms that might be brought against a man who treats his wife badly and who doesn't care about this. He may be cruel, heartless, and so on, and it might be better if he were not this way. But a defender of external reason statements, Williams said at one point, wants to go beyond this and say that the man is irrational if he fails to recognize that he has reason to treat his wife differently. Now, a defender of external reason statement need not, I think, and should not accept this requirement. And Williams later recognized this and retracted retracted the claim. But I conjecture that he made the claim in the first place because he himself believed that claims about reasons need to get a grip on an agent in a way that would ground a charge of irrationality if the agent ignored these reasons, and so thought that his opponent, the external reasons theorist, would want to claim this as well, but would want to make the claim in situations in which, as he saw correctly, I think, the claim was much less plausible. A similar thought, I think, seems to be what draws Michael Smith in The Moral Problem to identify reasons with what a person would desire for him or herself if fully rational. The fact that the the reason is determined by what what that person would desire if fully rational, fully informed, thinking clearly, and so on, ensures a connection between the consideration that is a reason and the agent, him or herself, perhaps a close enough connection to make it irrational for the person to reject the reason. And as Smith has said in more recent writing, here's the quote, if morality requires some limited form of altruism, then the principle of limited altruism is a principle on all fours with modus ponens and modus tollens and the principle of means ends, end of quote. So here again, the idea seems to be that claims about the reasons an agent has, if correct, must be claims that the agent cannot deny without a kind of irrationality. The idea of grounding claims about an agent's reasons in attitudes that an agent already holds may derive some of its appeal from the dialectical context in which an argument about reasons for action is imagined to take place. In Williams' example of the man who sees no reason to treat his wife better, the context is an instance of what Gil Harmon calls external reasoning, a context in which two people are arguing about what reasons for action one of them has and have a disagreement about this. In such a context, facts about one party's actual attitudes, as opposed simply to facts about the merits of the content of those attitudes, 
have a particular kind of dialectical salience. It's an obvious dialectical advantage to be able to get a grip on your opponent by saying, but you accept that such and such, and it follows from such and such that the fact that that P counts in favor of your doing A. It's noteworthy, I think, that much of Williams' discussion in the famous paper, Internal and External Reasons, involves one person trying to force some other person to agree that he has reason to act in a certain way. The example I've just mentioned of the man who treats his wife badly is a case in point. The famous example of Owen Wingrave uh, joining or not joining the army is another. These are, I think, typical of the, of the cases that, that Williams brings to our mind. Part of Korsgaard's argument in the early lectures of Sources of Normativity assumes a similar dialectical situation. She imagines two people disagreeing about whether something is a reason for a certain action, and she observes that it's mere reiterative stone-kicking for one party to say in the face of the other's denial, but it just is a reason. A much more effective response would be to come up with an argument that begins from something that the other party already accepts or something that the party, that party cannot deny on pain of contradiction or irrationality. But what it takes for a claim to be correct need not be the same as what it takes for the claim to be one that one's opponents in argument cannot consistently deny. These things are certainly different with respect to claims about empirical facts, and I think they're also different with respect to claims about reasons, which is the point at issue, although that's the matter about which we're disagreeing. That these two things are different is strongly suggested uh, when we shift to what Harmon calls a case of internal reasoning which is reasoning about what reasons oneself has. In this case, the mere fact that one, ought, that one cannot consistently reject a certain attitude, given that one has some other desire or intention or other attitude, is not itself dispositive. One can always ask oneself why one should have these attitudes in turn, whether they can be justified in the relevant way. From the agent's own point of view, her attitudes are largely transparent to the subject matter under consideration. The mere fact that I have this attitude, if it seems to provide a reason for this action, I can say, well, if it provides a reason for that action, then why should I have that attitude to begin with? Right? One, one individual's modus ponens in, the, in, in internal deliberation is another person's modus tollens, and the latter might be the way to go. Korsgaard recognizes and indeed emphasizes the possibility of this kind of reflective stepping back when one is thinking about what reasons one has. In such a situation, she says, a person must keep on asking why. Why should I think that? Why should I desire that? Why should I have that end? Why is that a reason? And so on. Until she comes to a point at which, in Korsgaard's words, it is impossible, unnecessary, or incoherent to ask why again. This is what she calls the search for the unconditioned. But leaving aside whether it's possible to find a genuinely unconditioned starting point for reasons about reasoning about what reasons one has, a starting point that does not itself involve any substantive judgment about reasons, is it true that we must always seek such a starting point, even in theory? The claim that we must continue stepping back until it is impossible unnecessary or incoherent to ask why again would be much less plausible without the disjunct unnecessary 
That is, it's much less probable to say we always have to continue stepping back until it is impossible or incoherent, incoherent to ask why again. It's, it's crucial to have necessary in there to make the disjunct seem to have covered the alternatives. But focusing on the disjunct unnecessary, when is it unnecessary to ask any further? I would say that whether it's unnecessary to ask any further depends on the substantive merits of the action one has reached, on whether this answer to what reasons one has seems, on reflection, to be clearly correct. Every argument has to start somewhere. Normative arguments are no exception. Grounding claims about reasons in claims about rationality, that is, in claims about what is required to avoid irrationality, thus has its greatest appeal in cases of external reasoning. In internal reasoning, what comes to the fore are the merits of of substantive conclusions about the subject matter being dealt with. In this case, uh, conclusions about the reasons one has for action. There is a reversal here that may at first seem surprising, but should not be so. Claims about irrationality are in one sense more internal than substantive claims about reasons. As John Broom has clearly put it, claims about rationality depend only on the contents of the subject's own mind and the relation between these concepts. So claims about rationality, that is to say, what we have to do to avoid irrationality, are in that sense internal. But such claims, claims about rationality in this sense, are not as relevant in internal reasoning as they are in the external variety. And it is the point of view of internal reasoning that's primary, I would argue, in an investigation of reasons and normativity. From this point of view, the question of how reasons get a grip on one properly disappears. There is only the question, what reason do I have? Once I've accepted that I have a reason, then we're ready to go. In these introductory remarks, I've tried to do several things. First, to identify the position for which I will offer a qualified defense. The, the, The thesis that claims about reasons can be correct or incorrect, and these claims are fundamental, that is, not reducible to or explainable in terms of claims of other kinds. I've tried to point out to you that this view seems, on the one hand, to have the support of common sense, but on the other hand, to see to seem philosophically shallow. I've tried to identify this position in a way that brings out what seems unsatisfactory and incomplete about it. I've considered two ways of providing a further explanation of reasons, on the one hand, by basing them in desires, or on the other, in an idea of rationality, and I've tried to indicate briefly, although I will follow up more later on, why I find these alternatives unsatisfactory. I'll have more to say about this in later lectures. But if these views are unsatisfactory, and if, as I will argue in the next two lectures, the appeal of expressivist views should also be resisted, then unless there is some other general account of reasons, which I doubt, reasons fundamentalism would be left as the only available position. If this were so, however, it may be a case in which one should be very careful what one wishes for since we will be left with the various problems about reasons that I've listed at the outset and may not be able to provide satisfactory answers to them. I will take up these problems again in my final lecture. Thank you very much.